Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. We have another deep dive major championship podcast on tap for you today. Uh, we recorded this about two months ago, probably. KVV and I, we kind of wanted to holster it for when we kind of had a gap in the schedule. We had an emergency pod squeezed in there. We've had a busy run up to the Masters. So I don't know if there's anything in particular that's dated about this, but we might be referring to upcoming Masters or Majors. But it was recorded, I believe, at the end of uh, sometime in February, probably at some time. So uh, it was bef- I know it was before the uh, model local rule was proposed by the USGA and RNA because we do talk a little bit about like you know what it, golf was like in 1995 and that's what this year is the 1995 major championships um, we go deep into the Masters U.S. Open British Open and the PGA and uh, have some fun along the way these are a blast to do thank you for everyone that has encouraged us uh, to do them because I think it uh, yeah it just adds a whole other layer of context to watching major championship golf every year uh, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro. Whether you're a scratch player or if you're new to the game, there's an easy way to lower your scores, and it's adding a rangefinder to your pre-shot routine. It will change your game forever. I always try to gun the front of the green and the pin to give an idea of what kind of my landing area is looking like. You don't want to just gun the pin and default to that number. There's a whole process that goes into you know creating the best possible scoring opportunities for you in our long time uh, partner Precision Pro Golf has created a rangefinder unlike any other. No Laying Up's been using the NX10 for almost a year now, I think maybe even more than a year, and it's easily the best rangefinder we have ever used. The Precision Pro NX10 has all the essentials like a magnetic cart mount, slope adjusted distances, an external slope switch, and HD optics. And you get free battery replacements and a three year warranty and a 30% off upgrade program. It's just a fantastic company. So head to precisionprogolf.com slash NLU to see our favorite part, which is the customization. You can choose one of our no laying up designs on precisionprogolf.com, or you can go get all the designs they have there with the NX10. You can easily switch the look of your rangefinder. Uh, that's something that uh, this is not in the copy, but I don't think anybody else has that. That's something very unique to Precision Pro. So head to precisionprogolf.com slash NLU. Use code no laying up for $20 off your NX10. Again, precisionprogolf.com slash NLU. Code no laying up for $20 off your NX10. Let's get to the pod. Kevin, how are you this evening? How ready are you to talk about 1995 major championships? Sally, I am excited. I was just thinking today, where were you in 1995? Uh, I would like to know that before we start out. I was a senior in high school. It was the first semester of my senior. I guess I would have been a junior when the, the majors were going on, but 95 would have been my senior football year. Uh, like glory days uh, in my eyes, like just, you know, ready to take on the world thought that I could you know do anything no disappointments uh in in front of me just yet what was going on in your life I would have been in third grade going into fourth grade by the end of this major championship series uh, season I think I did would not have, expect that did I not expect that. nine in 1995 uh so yeah that's kind of uh I, I I never think of you as that much older than me but I guess that's the case but it this is I don't really like, neither do I <laughs> I don't have like a specific time that I remember getting into golf, like a, a moment. And actually, is my math horrible there? I would not have been in third grade if I was nine years old, right? I've been in fourth grade, I guess, going into fifth, whatever. 
So I don't remember 95 majors. I think I remember 96 masters as like a, I remember watching that on that Sunday. I really truly do remember that. And I don't know if that's like my first major championship watching memory, but uh, so I, I don't think I remember, but there's so much about what happens in this year, at least the two that I'm going to be covering through this year that I remind me of my first impressions of golf, like enormous spike marks on the green and uh, just, you know, the, the shapes of the golf court, the, the, the way golf was played coming down the stretch, the mass amounts of bogeys made coming down the stretch was just like, oh yeah, golf looks really freaking hard on TV. And that's a lot, a lot about what I remember all golf as a kid. So I'm excited. There's a lot to cover here. And yeah, there's a lot, a lot I learned along the way. Like I, like pretty much all of these podcasts we've done. A lot of dad khakis. That's what uh, my uh, rewatch, a lot of Dockers was, uh, you know, I don't know that uh, it would become clear just how uncool pleats were for many years, but everyone had pleats. Uh, everyone had, had pants that were at least a size or two too big for them just flapping around. Uh, it was a remarkable time for really dorky fashion. And that might be where Dude Perfect is building Dude Perfect World too in Frisco. Pretty so, much, you know. it's it's <laughs> it's a thing. It's a thing. All right, do you want uh, do you want me to get started? Kind of setting the scene for 1995. You're going to take the Masters. I have the U.S. Open. You have the Open Championship, and I have the PGA Championship. So I'm going to just go ahead start in 1995. Do you know who the number one player in the world is? Uh, I know who is vying for two or three straight majors as we go into the Masters, but I don't know that I know who the number one player in the world is. I'm You're on the right track with him. You're on the right track. Right. All right. Is it Nick Price? It is, is Nick that, Price. Uh, he is the defending champion. He won the 1994 British Open. He won the 1994 PGA Championship. He's the number one player in the world. To no surprise, Greg Norman is two. Nick Faldo is three. Bernhard Longer is four. Jose Maria Olathabal is five. Uh, I don't, I mean, I, 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 again, I don't know your majors yet. I don't hear much from Longer and Olafabal in my majors, at least. Ernie Els is six. Fred Couples, seven. Colin Montgomery is eighth. Jumbo Ozaki, the OG manipulator, is ninth in the world. And tenth in the world is Corey Pavin. I went through that kind of quickly, but does anything stick out to you about that list, KBV? I'm going to say that it's no Americans in that list. Is that accurate? You were close. Fred Couples and Corey Pavin are okay. indeed Excuse of the me. American okay. persuasion. And uh, well, Sorry, so, guys. I just was falling asleep. As you a, were not <laughs> listening to me at all as I went through that. Uh, you know why? I was seeing, I was literally in my head thinking, I would buy an OG Jumbo Ozaki like shirt, like a, <laughs> a picture of, of Jumbo on it or a sweater. Uh, I would rock that. So I was hoping to try to you know, maybe slip that in as like a merch request while you're zipping past uh, Pavin and Couples' names. <laughs> Two Americans in the top 10 in the world. If you guessed right now, how many are there right now uh, as we sit here recording this in Feb February 28th, 2023? Uh, I would say there's six, maybe? There are seven Americans in the top 10. So very different era. Also, maybe why the U.S. lost a lot of Ryder Cups in this time period is they did not have a lot of the best players in the world. At this time, but we all know the OWGR is a scam and probably is irrelevant now. I don't. I did not have the SI rankings uh, for up for this one, but well, I know that the Masters only played at sixty nine hundred yards, uh, the sixty nine twenty five or something this year. So it would have been tough to climb the rankings with great uh, <laughs> distance distance per shot. Thing, so. That's actually probably pretty long in that era. I would have to. That's think. true. So winners on the PGA Tour to this point: Steve Elkington wins the Mercedes Championship. John Morse wins the Hawaiian Open. That's the first I've ever heard of that name. 
Phil Mickelson wins uh, the Northern Telecom Open. VJ wins in Phoenix. Peter Jacobson goes back-to-back at the AT&T Pebble and the Buick Invitational. Kenny Perry wins Bob Hope. Corey Pavin wins the Nissan Open as Corey Pavin's 12th PGA Tour title. Keep in mind, we will be revisiting that. Uh, Doral is won by Nick Faldo. Omira wins the Honda Classic. Lauren Roberts wins the Nestle Invitational. Lee Jansen players. And Davis Love, the Fremort McMorrin Classic. Guys, that, that's a hitters-only row of winners other than John Morse. Like, that is, those are some names uh, that are piling up the wins to start 1995. I don't know if those were designated events or how that worked exactly, but uh, there were some, that's, that's, that's pretty much the era right there on the PGA Tour. I'm not sure who's being, who's left off of like the Norman of that. Time. Norman yeah. not winning one there is 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 okay. tough, I think. But uh, I mean, a lot of the again, a lot of the OWGR top ten at that point is is European guys that were not playing the PGA Tour full time. Uh, mm. I, 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 to my knowledge, I mean, Longer and Olafable were not playing the PGA Tour at that time. Monty as well. So, uh, but yeah, as far as American guys go, that was uh, and and VJ and Elk, of course. That's a that's a, a hell of a run there. So. I hear you used to be able to do that and make a living on the European tour. Like, you know, that that was a thing. What, as a total aside, if Tiger was European, would professional golf, would like the center of the professional golf universe be in Europe? It's a great question. I mean, probably it would still look a little different because a lot of the money uh, still came from like U.S. corporations. Uh, I don't know like what European corporations were going to be throwing tons of money behind uh golf but i don't know i mean eventually like some of those guys came over but i guess tiger was still the driving force behind the majority of that so uh, it's a god it's a great what if that i've never considered i'm looking up uh and comparing purses in 1995 on the pga tour you know the hot the, the players championship was three million that's kind of an outlier but you know, Pebble Beach Pro-Am's 1.4, Buick's 1.2. And if you look at the European uh, run through that time of the year, Dubai is 700, Johnny Walker 600, and then it, it kind of goes down to, to 250,000 uh, pounds, 300,000 pounds. I don't know the pound to U.S. dollar uh, exchange rate at that point, but it does look appear to be a less. It's, it wasn't quite equal at that point. I know that, that may be a, a topic for the future to see, like, when the separation between the U.S. tours and European tours really, really started, so... Um, Getting into some deep economics here. Yeah. So, <laughs> a lot of we had a this guy. was not on the agenda. None of this was on the agenda. What is on the agenda is the 1995 <laughs> Masters, and you are going to take us there. As I said before, I know we like to set the stage for things. Nick Price, going for his third straight major, also holds the course record at Augusta, or at least is tied for the course record. Uh, it's been quite some time since uh, 1986 when he shot that 63, but uh, a lot of people are talking like, wow, well, Nick, Nick Price uh, – you know, be on his way to a you know a slam of subtypes. So we, as we open into the uh, the opening of the Masters, Walter Cronkite is on the opening into uh, the Masters really? in 1995. Yes, CBS bringing out Walter Cronkite to talk a little about the magic of uh, the Masters, and they put the Jurassic Park music uh, behind Walter Cronkite, uh, which I was just stunned about. I mean, I guess you know Jurassic Park came out in '93. So it's like a really big time for that sort of operatic. Da, 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 da. So not the typical like Masters music. They're they're throwing the Jurassic Park music behind it. Really? I might have yeah. to watch this. That's oh, insane. I think you, when I get through 95, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff you're going to want to see. <laughs> uh, this is actually the first Masters that CBS uh, had to do without Gary McCord uh, because the previous year, 
uh, on a difficult putt by Jose Maria. He he said that it was made all that harder because the greens hadn't been cut. They had been bikini waxed. Someone wrote a scathing letter to Augusta National and said that this type of offensiveness could not stand. Do you know who that person might have been, Sally? Tom Watson. That was Tom Watson. I know. I just learned this, actually. <laughs> Did you learn it because you saw that podcast? Uh, uh, yeah, they have a yes. podcast out now. The teaser in there. Was, that was the first I'd heard of that. Uh, who actually? I was wondering, that if that, is that like a long hidden secret? Or is this because Tom Watson really definitely had a reputation for being like a school marmy uh, sort of moralist uh, at this time. You know, he was sort of a wild child way back in the 70s and then sort of came around to be like a shame on you uh play the game the right way type person so i don't think that's the first uh i just googled tom watson gary mccord and there's a 2019 article that comes up um and then yeah there's something from 1994 in the washington post that that, that mentions that as well so oh, so mccord's big reveal to promote his podcast was uh, old news so. <laughs> Uh, in a in a conference call before the Masters, uh, Frank Chikanian, the famous longtime CBS producer, he was asked by reporters why he didn't back McCord uh, on principle when the Masters said that he had to go. And he said, how would you like to go back to management, shareholders, stockholders, and affiliates and say, oh, we for the sake of principle, we lost the Masters but kept Gary McCord? <laughs> <laughs> Which is a sick quote. It's <laughs> such a media question. I'm sorry. I know you're a big J journalist, but that is such big like day. a, hey, no matter what you decide, we're going to question the hell out of what you've decided. Like, this is clearly <laughs> the right call here. But how do you explain how you didn't stick up for Gary McCord? That's a great answer. Phil is actually your first round leader. 24-year-old Phil Mickelson opens up with a sizzling 66. Uh, he shares that honor with David Frost and defending champion Jose Maria. Do you know, Sally, who might have shot a 67 round, a very famous person? In 1995, I'm also going to guess Tom Watson. You are close, but it is Jack Nicholas. <sighs> uh, Jack Nicholas in 1995 was still opening one shot out of the lead uh, of the Masters, which is sort of stunning. So um, he would have been 55 years old at this point. Correct. So if you're holding out hope, uh, obviously, like Tom Watson at, at uh, Turnberry is sort of the ultimate uh sort of golden you know thing to hold up and sort of say like hey hey the guys can still do it when they get really old uh jack in in this and then also in the 1998 finishes you know sixth the year after tiger wins uh, he beats tiger in the following masters which is still the most ridiculous thing one of my favorite stats yeah. facts ever 58 yeah. year old jack the year after tiger wins by 12 58 yeah. year old jack beat him the next year it's so sick so the big story kind of coming into this uh, Masters is that Harvey Pennick, the, the very famous uh, golf coach who coached Ben Crenshaw and Tom Kite and had sort of given Davis Love some instruction throughout his life, had died the week before the Masters and uh, 90 years old. And he was sort of the person who put a club in uh, Ben Crenshaw's hands when he was six years old. So Crenshaw and Kite actually fly home to Austin the Sunday before the Masters to serve as pallbearers in uh, Pennick's funeral. And a week before that, Pennick had actually given Crenshaw a putting lesson, even though he was too ill to get out of bed. He said to Ben, uh, grab your putter and take a few strokes here on the carpet and trust yourself and don't let the club head pass your hands. And so that was the sort of swing thought that Ben Crenshaw, one of the great putters of all time, took into this Masters. Nick Price eventually misses the cut uh, and begins to sort of show his frustration with the Masters. Number one player in the world had emceed at the Masters three out of the last eight times there, had never really contended. 
someone asked him about his 63 and you know he said that seems like 400 years ago mate this is the masters debut of the cat uh this is the first masters where he ever competed and the reporters were estimating that throughout the tournament he was 30 yards longer than greg norman and Fred couples uh that he was just absolutely smashing it someone asked john daly uh, do you think he's as long as you? And he said, yeah, I think we're tied. And then they showed him the stats. And it was Tiger was like 15 yards longer than Daly uh, throughout the tournament. He led the tournament in driving distance, which I did not realize. There was this snippet period of time for like this up through 97, maybe, where uh, with these titanium drivers that were not the enormous heads yet, but with the spinny golf ball, that I would love for somebody to explain, like literally actually explain the science behind how he was hitting it as far. I'm thinking more of 97, but he never had distance domination over the rest of the field past that, really. Like, to that to that extent. He had always hit it long, but like in 2000, he wasn't like the longest hitter out there. That wasn't what made him incredible. But like at 97 Masters, hitting wedges and shit into par fives and hitting it so freaking far... I, I'd love for somebody to, you know, explain how that happened and why he was able to do that with that equipment. And I, I don't know, maybe it is as simple as like, dude, the equipment just got kind of brought everyone closer together. And how ridiculous does that look now? But yeah, this time period of like, no one was swinging that hard at these Bellotta balls other than, than daily. 311 yards uh, per drive. He averaged uh, that masters, which, you know, in that era is just kind of bonkers. I mean, there were still a couple guys playing wooden drivers, I think like uh, maybe like, just the few but they were and they're all playing like the steel shafts and stuff so woods is kind of like a celebrity rock star throughout this the huge um people i did not realize this but he when he uh competed in this masters he was only the fourth black person to compete in the masters in 1995 only the fourth which is just fucking insane Jesus. so yeah thank great job golf you really you did a great job <laughs> Uh, he, they asked him, you know, some of his thoughts, uh, and he was kind of very sort of like, you know, doing his, um, Michael Jackson, ah, you know, it's fine. It's, everything's good. Uh, he asked him about Magnolia Lane. He said, I guess I thought, you know, as I thought it would be longer, uh, <laughs> sick quote. Dude, that is an incredible nineties tiger. That is like a, a specific <laughs> to that era voice tiger that you just did. It, it, it eventually becomes like a whole, whole yeah. Oh, yeah. It gets more Urkely, but yeah. like early, this is my favorite Tiger in that era. It's where it's like there's a little bit of a very soft kind of voice to it. You know, mama, dad says that I need to do this. It's just <laughs> the, my favorite Tiger. Absolutely the best. Like weird shit kind of was, I mean, Tiger might be the original um, Icarito because all throughout the tournament, he was like hitting like the ball 15 yards long of greens. I mean, he was hitting, he had nine iron basically into every par five. Like he had nine iron into 15 all four days. And like hit it over all four times. Like he had seven iron into thirteen a bunch of times. So if, if we're looking for like the the original Icarito, that might be uh, the actual uh, sort of uh, genesis of it. So you can uh, rewatch. I mean, if you watch the the how did Tiger finish? Like you watch the final round of that ninety five broadcast on YouTube, right? You can watch Tiger play a fair amount. You of You only get that. like little snippets gotcha. of it. I mean, they just I've got some of this from a Rick Riley article that gotcha. talks about uh, how long he was. Um, you know, Rick Riley remains an incredible resource for. I all was this, gonna say. Know, stuff. I like, wonder if, as he's writing these movies, like, hmm, man, in like twenty-seven years, these podcasters <laughs> are gonna love this stuff. I don't know why he's why all of a sudden, but yeah, that's 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 what's going on in my head. 
Well, that's why we had to bring back writing at NLU so that like future <laughs> podcasters will have uh, stuff to to search out. Uh, so it's not just all podcasts that they have to skip through. AI will be doing um, it at that point. So it's fun. <laughs> Tiger's parents actually got their window smashed in and like stuff's taken from their car uh, in Augusta that year, like staying at their hotel. It was like a people were sort of wondering why Tiger was kind of a little bit kind of reserved and not sort of like, you know, super excited and, and Riley sort of speculated like, yeah, like why would you super celebrate a place where that had sort of, you know, kept like the Charlie Siffords out and, you know, people that had been really important to your father? And why would you, you know, not be like so excited about the crow's nest when like people who didn't look like you get to stay there forever? Tiger did get to, he finished low am uh, that year and was in Butler Cabin afterwards. And um, so Nance asked him, asked him, you know, what do you think you're going to turn pro? And he was like, oh no, I'm, I'm going to go all four years. Uh, and he was like, it's a tough world out there. I feel like it's right for me to live it up a bit. I'm only 19 and you're only young once. Uh, and then he says that he has to get, they had to pre record the Butler Cabin interview because he had to get back for a 9 a.m. Stanford history class uh, that his parents insisted he get. So he basically, like, you know, by far the best am at the Masters had to hop on a plane and immediately uh, head home uh, and uh, get back. So uh, that's the Tiger update, which I thought was sort of one of the most interesting. So we'll, we'll visit him a little bit just at the, the British Open. So at the start of Sunday, they're actually like, 23 players within seven shots it's a super jumbled masters it's really like no one kind of knows exactly uh at this moment like who's going to be the dude ben crenshaw is leading but brian henninger i don't know if you've heard that name of course yeah, yeah. henny old henny <laughs> okay it's getting involved. uh he he's tied with ben crenshaw uh headed into sunday uh fred couples and steve elkington <laughs> for the record i've never heard that name yeah. that was a hundred percent a joke by the way well, Brian quickly gets dropped from coverage. So, uh, you know, they didn't quite drop guys quite as much then. Uh, but Brian does not feature in a lot of uh, important uh, narrative as it goes. Uh, Fred Couples, Steve Elkington, Jay Haas, Scott Hoke, and Phil Mickelson, uh, only a shot back to start the day. And some other guys who are going to factor in who are not really within the first, uh, you know, sort of thing, including Davis Love and Greg Norman. So it opens here in some of the coverage this is still when they're only covering essentially nine holes of the tournament which chicanian mentioned is like infuriated him that he wished the masters would like get with the program and uh, let them broadcast more than that but uh, really not i feel like frank and i uh, got along really well <laughs> definitely <laughs> frank would have been a, a big hamsterdam uh, listener <laughs> i think um on the eighth hole of uh, sunday Fred Couples comes as close to making an albatross as you could possibly come without uh, doing it. He hits like this sweeping two iron from like 265 away. And it it skirts along the sort of edge of the, eight, the apron there and, and rolls towards the hole. And it basically misses by an inch, half an inch. And Venturi like chuckles like, you know, this kind of thing happens all the time. Like, oh, well, I've seen him go in before. Like, this would only have been like the fourth at the time albatross ever made at the Masters. And Venturi and Nance are kind of like, uh, yeah, or Nance isn't in the booth at that point, but Venturi is kind of like, oh, you know, what a, you know, what a night, what a fine afternoon this is. I'm like, wow, like, were things just like that way understated back then? Like, it just was kind of remarkable that there was just no like excitement. Venturi has this, uh, uh, this, this happened when, remember, uh, when Ian Woosdom made his putt. Uh, to win the Masters in 1991, he's celebrating and, and Woosom's, or uh, you know, he's still going nuts with his caddy. And Venturi's like, "Hold on, Fred Couples has a putt for second here coming up here." 
<laughs> no matter how great the moment is, there's always a hold on. There's something about to happen here. That, that comes up at the PGA when we get there as well. Uh, I wish you could see Phil's outfit for this final round. Um, I wish actually Phil, current Phil, could see Phil's outfit. Like just, just the most ill-fitting khakis, the most insurance salesman thing ever, like big white shoes, no hat, uh, just an innocent boy, uh, you know, poised to destroy the golfing world one day down the road. Uh, it just struck me as funny. And Bones, uh, this is one of our first kind of like, you know, things we can really see Bones. Beautiful, curly, kind of brownish gray hair. Uh, never had seen, yeah, a lot of hair. Never, personally, I had not seen Bones uh, with that look before and then really didn't keep it for much afterwards. But love seeing the big locks uh, sort of poking out of Bones' hat there. So. Davis Love is really the dude here who, other than Crenshaw, is the story. I mean, he... Shoots a 66 on Sunday that could have been like a lot lower. He was driving the shit out of the golf ball. Just, you know, he and Norman were paired together. They were bombing it all day, but everywhere, like love just kept hitting it like into places. I mean, he had a seven iron into 13 green and made a five. Uh, he had a nine iron into 15 and, you know, didn't make an eagle. So even though he hit it to like 10 feet, I mean, it's just like some of the places where you talk about tiger, obviously tiger was long, but Davis Lug was like really longer too than a lot of, not longer than Tiger, but a longer than like way more of the people in the field that year. He ends up finishing 13 under par. It's, it's 275 is the lowest score to, to not win the Masters. A tough pill to swallow, but, uh, but he hit, coming down the stretch, he hit, I think, one of the sickest shots that I think I've ever seen in the 17, where he basically, the pin was way right in that little kind of bowl there. And he maybe hit it to like, a foot and a half, like just absolutely stoned it, which is really, really hard to do on 17, as you know. But as you know, on uh, on 16, as Bones always says, weird shit happens. Uh, and that hole was playing back then, like, you know, 179 or something. And Love hit what was like a six iron that maybe flew like 200 yards and stayed up on top of the, the shelf there. Couldn't get it down, made a bogey. Crenshaw kind of makes it like... Um, as I'll sort of detail in a sec, like kind of makes it irrelevant. But Love was essentially leading the tournament all throughout uh, the day and really had the only the true shot to sort of to beat Crenshaw until Crenshaw like kind of went ham on the last few holes. Uh, on 18, Love hit, honest to God, like the furthest shot left that I think I've ever seen anyone <laughs> hit. I mean, this is like Bernie Sanders AOC left like this far left as you get like literally down in the ninth fairway. It was with the ball and he had like 120 yards in from the like an angle that's like straight up the hill. It was crazy. And he somehow made a par. He hit it short of the green then putted from there made it, you know, and so at that point you're thinking like maybe uh, maybe this is going to hold up. Maybe like Lovell have sort of done this like did that play was did it look intentional. Because Tiger did that in 97 on that Sunday. That was a play of like, and Woosnam kind of talked about that too in 91 about just aim it over that bunker and hit it as hard as you can. And like, that's the widest spot you could find. It looked like he was trying to hit it over the bunkers, but it did not. It looked like he also like leaned hard on it left and it just, it hit the hill and went so far down. I mean, like I, you can hear Venturi say like, I've never seen a drive <laughs> hit down there for, you know, ever. Uh, and so it was like, I was literally like stunned when I was, was watching it. I don't know how many people kind of remember the 95 masters as one that Greg Norman sort of potentially like booted away. Like it's not on the highlight list of like ones that you think of Greg Norman having pissed away, but 
is definitely one that he could have won. I mean, he had it's insane. You know, it's everywhere in this era, dude. It's just like every every major that dude was around in. It's unreal. I mean, he just you could see why because he just drove the shit out of it. He's in the fairway every time. He's ball striking the shit out of it. He just honestly, if I had to sort of say what the difference was between a Greg Norman and like a Fallo, it's that Norman just didn't make a shit ton of like clutch putts that he really needed to. Like that's what kind of repeatedly leaves lets him down. I mean, he has really makeable eagle putts on 13 and 15, including a, a eagle putt on 15 that's maybe eight feet away. Doesn't even like come close to scaring the hole. Um, so you know, he he kind of just sort of hits he's still in it, Norman is, and has sand wedge in his hand on 17 and yanks it so far left on the 17th green, which you cannot miss, like when the pin is right. So he's got to like putt over that elephant back, and it's just impossible. Like he's got no chance. Ultimately, though, like it ends up being Crenshaw's tournament. Like he says all throughout, like fate has sort of helped bring me here to uh, this. Like I could feel Harvey. Like every time some crazy shit would happen, like on you know on 16 or excuse me on on 15, 14, he hits it in the trees. It hits, kicks a tree out, and goes in the fairway. And his wife sort of is walking along and says to Riley at some point, like that was Harvey like Harvey's like with us on that one and like everything everything that you know could have happened that was crazy like that was Harvey he, Crenshaw like he hits it into the uh, bunker on 12 and then hits an amazing bunker shot out to to make a par there he hits a terrible four iron into the 13th green that gets stuck up in the swale hits a kind of a mediocre chip and then makes like one of the prettiest putts that you've ever seen CBS like has the camera down like on ground level for birdie and then he just keeps counting down the stretch. He birdies 16 and 17 and makes it kind of a moot point. Like he he wins by two, collapses on the green, you know, with his hands in his face, uh, just completely over the moon, like emotional, sobbing on the green, sort of saying, you know, I, I could feel like Harvey with me. I, I believe in fate. I don't know how this happened. I don't. Uh, really kind of like one of the, the masters that um, a lot of people – remember just for that huge outpouring of emotions it's crenshaw's second masters uh you know he never really contends seriously in a major again on a sunday and so but this moment was just kind of a, a huge i remember you know it was the cover of sports illustrated him sobbing and stuff and I, I didn't even know who harvey pennick was at the time but you know I've since like read that little book and seen you know how sort of influential it is in golf and you know he just said like all week he just tried to keep that sort of putting tip that pennick had given him in mind like just trust your line and don't let your hands uh, don't let the the head get past your hands and dude one of the most gorgeous putters that ever lived like just took that to the bank it's a it's an iconic image from from my childhood at least or, or master's image of that you know his head in his hands and carl jackson there his caddy like kind of putting mm -hmm. his hand on him on his back and uh i just looked this up he was miscut t42 miscut miscut coming into this masters and uh there's something about a a familiar face kind of tying this story together, right? If it's 25-year-old mm -hmm. Ben Crenshaw whose coach just died, it doesn't really resonate as much as he was. Was he like, if I remember right, like 42 or something at, at this Masters, something like that? And you just have, there's so much context for the announcers that know him very well and the viewers that likely know him well, like that moment uh, just always, um, you know, it, it, it it's, it's a, it's iconic moment for for a reason, right? Like the, just the building up of all that story and it coming together uh, in that moment. 
you know, this is in the era when you're allowed to bring your own caddy, but Crenshaw had still elected to use Carl Jackson, who's like one of the more famous Augusta caddies ever. And it's so fun to see shots of like Carl Jackson, like big cigarette in his mouth. Like the, the caddies back then, you know, the US caddies were just very much like normal people. And it was so, you know, they weren't sort of like semi-celebrities like some of the caddies are now travel with the guys all the time on tour and so it's just awesome to see like and Crenshaw over and over just said like Carl was the guy who kept me calm who helped me you know he, I think Carl Jackson ended up caddying in like 50 masters like I think he only missed one masters in the whole sort of time that he was uh you know working caddy at Augusta which is pretty awesome oh anything else from uh from 95 masters I think that pretty much covers it. I mean, you know, I didn't do enough research on Brian Henniger, so I can't really tell you. Like, I just did a uh, quick click. Looks like he won a, an event in the summer of '94 that got him into the Masters in a play. He got he won that in a playoff, and it did not do a whole lot with his career. So it was very much a uh, things are probably moving very quickly. We get into the final pairing <laughs> at the Sunday at the Masters with Ben Crenshaw. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Mizzen and Maine. Haven't heard from these guys in a while. Listen, no one, you don't get excited about wearing a dress shirt, not even us in the C-suite. They're boring, they're uncomfortable, they're stiff, but Mizzen and Maine dress shirts are the exact opposite. True story here. Hadn't worn a dress shirt in a very, very, very long time. They were getting a little dingy just sitting in the closet. Uh, I needed one for my sister's wedding. What's the first thing I did? I went to MizzenandMaine.com. I paid full price for it. I didn't even, wasn't even just working off the samples that they sometimes send our way. They're lightweight, breathable, moisture-wicking, wrinkle-resistant, and something that you're actually excited to wear to work i was running up when i had a desk job i was running up enormous dry cleaning fees uh you know it was such a pain to have to go to the dry cleaner once a week or once every other week and it adds a whole nother layer of complication to your life that mizzen and main addresses you can wear it to the office you can throw it in a suitcase or just keep it by your at-home desk for when you need to look nice for a zoom call or whatever it is whatever you do and wherever you wear it know that you'll look and feel amazing they make more than just work clothes too they uh they have polos they have pants they have shorts pullovers and t-shirts they're just very comfortable you feel great when you're wearing it. That's the best possible endorsement I can give. The Mizzen and Main Broam also is a sweepstakes. I, I really regret that I did not come up with Broam before I read this copy uh, on my own. The Mizzen and Main Broam is a sweepstakes running from now until April 21st. It's a chance to get your group of golfing buddies covered in Mizzen and Main along with a bunch of free swag. You just got to apply at mizzenandmain.com slash no laying up. All the info's on their social channels as well. And after you've applied uh, for the Broam, again, I cannot believe I didn't come up with that. Visit mizzenandmain.com to start shopping. Use code NLU for $35 off any purchase of $125 or more. That's code NLU at MizzenandMain.com for any purchase of $125 and more. Let's get back to 1995 majors. Can I take you to Shinnecock Hills on Long Island from June 15th to June 18th in 1995? It's the 100th anniversary of the United States Open. It is a par 70 measuring 6,944 yards. The fairways are between 28 and 35 yards wide. There is primary rough that is five inches in height. Uh, and then again, this is a, a wonderful U.S. Open film that they have. They not only have the film on the USGA website, uh, but they also have the final hour and 40 minutes from the telecast. Uh, you can watch that live. I did both of those things in pre preparation for this. Listen. Beginning of that video says that the greens are stemping between 10 and a half and 11. I'm here to say they were not. Okay. That no. is a takeaway from this era. I don't know what it was like for you rewatching the 95 masters greens were not fast back then. And, uh, it, you know, for like the, and for the very first time at this U S open, nine of the greens are surrounded by what they call closely mown areas, uh, meant to bring mm. out a variety of chips and pitches. Uh, again, not quite the same speed we see out of closely mown areas these days. <laughs> and, Gotta say, Shinnecock not looking its best. Uh, the course is 
surrounded by trees at this point. It looks entirely different from what we saw in 2018. Uh, it's got really circular greens, fringes that just kind of catch all the balls that go long. It looks Bay Hillish around the greens, really. It, it just looks d- desperate for uh, a restoration, which we got uh, from Corin Crenshaw in the uh, in the later years here. But uh, just not the not the pristine, like, a- extreme test that I remember, or I guess, I don't want to say extreme test, because this was a very, very, very testing U.S. Open, but just kind of a, a textbook uh, overgrown and 90s era development of, a, of an extremely awesome golf course that has has refound its soul in recent years like a lot of them. But when, when you say restoration, it's because a lot of golf courses looked like this in this era, and then and it sticks out to this day what golf courses have not come out of this era, but uh, man, it's different. I meant I meant to say in mine thing like if Ben Crenshaw doesn't win a second Masters like he probably still designs like a lot of great courses or whatever but it's like another bit of added cachet of like okay this guy's about to change the way of modern architecture and it's just that much more credibility that he had and probably getting jobs and um, so you know it's it's an important win just for that sort of alone because like I think you and I would sort of both agree that like. I would probably play a core Crenshaw course uh, if I couldn't play a McKenzie course, like the first choice that I would sort of choose. Like it's just always like enjoyable, fun golf. It is interesting. Um, Greg Norman's going to play a role here in the coming uh, coming next few minutes of <laughs> their impacts on the game of golf going to pol- polar <laughs> different ways of Ben Crenshaw, like the way you just said it, and Greg Norman's being, I'd say, slightly different than uh, – uh, than than highly engaging to almost you know any golfer on the planet that that plays the game or travels to play the game so might be a little gap there little little breadcrumbs being uh, laid for the future of golf here you uh, you kind of spoiled one of the newcomers in the field already because it's not going to oh. be as exciting um, when I say it but a 19 year old by the name of Tiger Woods is playing in his first U.S. Open he would ultimately withdraw in the second round with a wrist injury due to uh, mm. the heavy stuff which he hits a ball out of in the second round. Um, and, and hurts his left wrist. I remember when that happened, there was some talk that, oh, he might never win a U.S. Open because <laughs> he just is too wild off the tee. And, like, I I know, I, I'm sure I could find some sort of piece written about that. I feel like it was maybe even in SI where, you know, certainly I was a religious reader at the time of, like, well, there's whispers that he, he may never conquer the U.S. Open, that he'll be more of a master's so. We'll see if that works out for him. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) After a 30-year absence, NBC returns to broadcast the U.S. Open, taking over for ABC. This was news to me. Uh, Again, this is right around when I was getting into golf. For me, NBC has always been synonymous with the U.S. Open, so that was a a shocker to me. I never thought about when did NBC pick up the contract. I just, I assumed they'd they'd had it forever up until they lost it to Fox in, was it 2015 was the first year that uh, I think Fox did, but... And now, of course, they have it back. But yeah, that was that was a shocker to me. I don't know if this was Johnny Miller's first U.S. Open that he was calling. It, it must have been if that was the case. But and man, I don't know if broadcasting was actually better then, or whether or not this is just like ingrained at me again in a time when I was super impressionable. But man, Johnny Miller calling golf was still somehow underappreciated. Uh, he and Maltby were so good at just like putting emotion into the shots as they were playing out and their rapport back and forth and. Dickenberg on the play-by-play call and dude they just fucking linger on the drama they just linger they're not in a rush they don't have to fill every moment uh with words between them they just you know Greg Norman makes a par and he's going from 
you know, 11 green to 12 T and they just follow him the whole way right behind him. And they, you know, they document the crowd noise as he gets up to the T and starts throwing blades of grass up in the air, figuring out the wind. And then they go boom right into it and set the scene for the next shot. It just, I, I don't have a, uh, again, it's probably just overly nostalgic for me, but it just was a great, it's just drama filled. It felt like it was a great way to present the action. They showed a lot of golf, but at the same time, just kind of hung around and made you feel the tension in the air. And, and especially when we get to the paving stuff later, you can just see how nervous he is, but they're just not in an overall hurry to, uh, to rush around and show irrelevant shots. They're going to focus in on where, where the drama is. So I'm not trying to squeeze in and like every last corporate dollar they can possibly do to uh, maximize profits for shareholders at this point. And again, it might be, uh, you know, creative editing on the YouTube upload or whatever, but you could, it's pretty clear. You can tell when the commercial breaks are, and they are a lot less frequent at that time. Listen, there was a lot less money in golf at that time, but it really didn't, it did not seem overall like the distraction that it, it would be today, but I guess an edited version today would probably feel the same way. So who could say? Ernie Els enters this week as the favorite and defending champion at plus 700. Faldo's plus 800. Couples, Price, and Norman at plus 1,200. Uh, Norman is up to number one in the world at this time, coming off a win at the Memorial. Uh, Paven is sixth in the world. And again, Paven has 12 PGA Tour wins without a major title, which is most amongst all the Americans on the leaderboard. So I don't know if that was most among all Americans, but they threw a little graphic up that said he was most amongst the guys on the leaderboard. I was like, okay, well, I don't know how helpful that is. But in some of my research, uh, there was someone asking Paven about, you know, when are you going to win major? And he was like kind of ornery. It was like, I'm trying to win a lot of majors. Obviously, I would need to win my first one, but like I'm trying to win several majors. And, and to get that done, I need to win one. So thanks for asking. <laughs> he seems very like, uh, you know, upset at the capital G golf, capital M media in general of answering questions about <laughs> about winning a major but in a tradition unlike any other as well we have to give a shout out to rolex for that video that uh, that summary video that's presented on the youtube page and to raymond floyd does the intro to the video and he stands so comically awkwardly with his arms crossed just so he can show off his rolex while he introduces the video <laughs> and uh i just had to give a shout out to that because that really made me laugh of no one stands and talks to camera with their arms crossed and arms raised up wise just to make sure the rolex gets in the shot but clearly someone behind there was like more rolex in the shot please thank you well pat perez did that this week to make his muscles look bigger in the live videos so, oh he looked you know. yoked according to the the, the live boys <laughs> So remember back to when we did our 91 pod about you, you made a note about uh, how at that in that era, everyone, all the, the journalists, capital J journalists went out of their way to make a point about how small Ian Woosnam was. Yes, <laughs> that is going to be a theme that runs rampant throughout uh, all of the coverage of Corey Pavin's pursuit of a U.S. Open title. Uh, Bob Costas, again, does the narration in this video that's on YouTube, and he, he says, it was a week that saw one of the game's giants take early command and another giant lead most of the way. But in the end, it was a little man on a big mission who towered above them all, which is wow. the most 90s thing ever. They are not shy at all about just dunking on Corey Pavin for his height. I, I got to tell you, I've met Bob Costas, and he doesn't need to be throwing any stones at people <laughs> for his height. Like, it's, he's 5'3", five, 5'4", five, at, at on its like with lifts like i would think he'd be a little more sensitive he's got a yeah. pass to be able to say those things i guess i i, I don't know but and yeah before we get going too hard on the action here i do want to put a call out uh for people to watch this if, if you're trying to understand more about the distance debate 
watch the 1995 U.S. Open in Shinnecock Hills. Like, there's conditions involved in this tournament. There's a lot of wind involved. It looks really hard, but Shinnecock is not tricked up by any means. Like, there was rain in the early part of the week. The greens get a little baked out once the wind starts whipping, and there's some downwind holes that are really hard to hold, but... It just played really hard. Like the par 5 16th hole was a genuinely difficult hole by the end of the week. And straight up an old school US Open broke out. Every there was the leaderboard gravity. Everyone was going the wrong direction. Birdies meant so much. Bogeys were inevitable. Like you were no one was getting through the back nine on Sunday without making a bogey. Wind was whipping and just again you're using these golf balls that are impossible to keep out of the wind. And like I said, the green speeds were not that fast. Like downhill putts, they're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a ticklish putt that he's got. And Corey Pavin's taking the putter back like four feet and whacking this thing. It was, I do not remember this era having slow greens, but how it plays today with how fast they have to make the greens. If the USGA got this, that much wind at a US Open now, they would not have been able to play. The, the balls would not have stayed on the green. I don't care where you play it or how, how, you know, how hairy you keep the greens. They just have to get that line so thin because of how far the golf ball goes. And I know we've said this a million times, but like this crystallizes it. At no point when you're watching this are you like, gosh, I wish Xander could like toe hit one and it would still go 310 down the fairway right now. It's like, no, no, hit this little driver head and try to figure out how to get this ball in the hole. Get crafty with how you're going to hit your shots. And it's freaking fascinating. It really is. I don't know if golf would have gotten as popular as it is today if the equipment would have stayed this kind of challenging to hit. But, man, it makes way more – golf wakes way more sense looking at it like this than it does currently. When you see guys hit, like, little punches and little, like, carvy, you know, things that, like, things that never get five feet off the ground because it just it's the only way to get it up around the green, it's really cool. And I just – something was definitely lost there, right? You're, you're right. Like, I, you see guys now and they're – Super frustrated not being able to just hit a towering seven iron through the wind. But like in that era, guys just didn't even try that shit because it was just there was no way you'd get the thing would go 110 yards and then fall straight down. Well, you don't need to hit towering seven irons anymore because everything's a wedge like the 470 holes they're hitting nine irons into. It just it, it really it it defines it like right there. I know it's like we've gotten very used to seeing this style of golf and it's hard to picture it. But if you go back and watch again in part of the video. At one point, they say, Greg Norman has chosen three iron here to go after this pin in the back left. It's like, when have you ever seen a guy go after a pin in a, with a three iron? I promise this whole thing's not going to be about the distance debate. But, man, again, watching these guys, like, struggle to w try to win this thing sure seemed like maybe when this tournament had its most identity, right? So, like, I still, like, tend to disagree with Randy on how much, like, he thinks the USGA should push it. Because it's like, dude, the USGA has made terrible mistakes, I think, in this, and it's in limiting the distance and the technology more than it is like their setup problems. Because they just, you can't, they, they have no margin for error on either side. When the wind doesn't blow, guys are going to pick it apart, and the wind blows, the greens are too fast to, to even play golf. And uh, they've kind of backed themselves into this corner, but I, I, I do feel empathy for the people that are trying to set up these golf tournaments now. Yeah, it's. You'll, I'll revisit that a little bit just in the my uh, Open Championship thing, but no chance that if the wind blew as hard uh, like last year at the Open Championship that it did in the year that I watched that they could have had the greens the same speed because the, their pants are just whipping. Yeah. I mean, you absolutely like have to just have stones over four-footers because if you push it a little bit, the wind is absolutely taking it and might blow it off the green. <laughs> Uh, so the, especially with the, like, th that's why they had to play. That's why the reputation for 
British Open Greens is a little bit longer because the wind would freaking blow and they couldn't have it. But now they just can't because of distance. And RNA lost them in 2015, the day we were there and, and blacked out, I think, that night because yeah. we had nothing to do but drink <laughs> because they couldn't play because the winds were too strong. But Nick Price is back after the MC at the Masters and it shoots a 66 to open up a one-shot lead over Scott Simpson. Uh, Greg Norman and Phil Mickelson are two back. Phil had it to minus five at one point before making a double and a bogey coming in, finishing uh, two under. Jumbo Ozaki holding up his top 10 world ranking, uh, sits there at one under par. Tigers psycho scorecard at the front nine, making only one par on the front. Uh, Bill Murchison, a Nike Tour player, gets off to a hot start, and Costas makes a joke that there's at least nine people in the gallery cheering for him because he travels in a van every week with his wife and eight children. What? <laughs> he travels what? the Nike tour every week with in a van with his wife and eight children. Is what uh, caught, there was no more information. That's all the information that, that I was given on that one. But uh, see, that like is he a was, horror story that needed to be told. <laughs> I would like to track him down now and hear that story. Find each one of those eight kids. Bill Murchison, go find him. I I believe okay. you can do it. Fifty-five year old Jack Nicholas shoots seventy-one in round one. Remarkable. What? What a baller Jack was. A total like, G at golf. A, a capital <laughs> G gangster at golf. Just like, would literally, like, obviously wasn't contending in his 50s very much, but was showing up as on the first page of the leaderboard, like, every single major being like, yeah, I can throw one good round in there. Like, uh, I'm I'm still a badass. He would shoot 79 in round two to miss the cut, unfortunately, but still a remarkable accomplishment. Um, in round two, Nick Price shoots 73, and Norman takes the lead by two over Jumbo Ozaki by shooting 67. Phil and Bob Tway are three back at two under. Kurt Byram sighting as he sits at T7 uh, tied with Faldo. Honestly, like, I don't know a whole lot about Kurt Byram or his career. Like, with the announcers... It can kind of be 50 50 of like, did you play professionally? Like, I don't, you're before my era. Like, I don't know if you played professionally or not. I'm like, oh, okay, Kurt Byron, very serious golfer here. Okay, like, Mark Rolfing, did you play? I, I don't know the that, answer to that. It's before tell. my time. Yeah. Peter Costas, I don't remember if you played, but I think um, someday, like, future generations will be like, but did Shane Bacon win a US Open? Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I, I, it could be. I mean, I don't know. Maybe. Norman, of course, famously held the lead here at Shinnecock in 1986 at the U.S. Open after 54 holes, uh, got into a confrontation with a fan, and ended up finishing T12 on that Sunday. It did not go well. That was the year of the Saturday Slam. Uh, and again, he leads after 36 holes. Comes out, again, this was the day that Norman comes to 18 and chose a three iron to attack a pin in the back left of the green, which kind of just was like, holy shit, man, this is a different golf tournament. Round three, I got to say, third leg Greg comes out in the freshest of fresh white straw hats. I mean, he just looked oh, yeah. like a fucking baller. He looked ready to take on anyone on this Saturday. Uh, he would have shoot 74. Unfortunately, uh, he did not like the pin positions. He said they didn't match the wind, uh, and he could not have thought of a round that was uh, as tough and demanding as that Saturday at Shinnecock Hills. Um, Tom Lehman has managed to score 67 on this day and gets into a tie for the lead with Norman at one under par. Mickelson and Tway are at even one back. And Paven, Nick Price, Stricker, Verplank, and the wee Welshman Ian Woosnam, T5, draws the pairing with Corey Paven on the Sunday at, at Shinnecock Hills. Who could have get, seen that one coming? A Lilliputin showdown, is it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Pavin at one point drains a uh, when he gets to the par three eleventh hole. Uh, again, Costa says this tough little hole met its tough little match, uh, and of course a reference to Pavin's height. Uh, he drained a ten foot par putt at what point? At one point, and walked straight away from the hole. I didn't know we were still doing this in '95. I know this was like something back in the '60s and '70s. You made the caddy get the ball out of the hole from for you, but Pavin pulled this one every now and then. But um, huge scores on this day, including quote. Ozaki, a jumbo 80, uh, which, again, Costas is really working off some some excellent material here. He and Rick Riley are basically trading, like, quips and, like, <laughs> jokes for the entire 90s. <laughs> so we get to round four again. Norman has a 54-hole lead yet again. Um, Neil Lancaster goes out and shoots 29 on the back nine and shoots 65 in the final round. Ends up in a tie for fourth. Uh, that was, I believe, Neil the lowest Lancaster. score ever um, uh, posted on, in nine holes at the U.S. Open. Wow. They show Corey Pavin's tee shot on one, and again, I, I hate to make this about distance, but longing for an era where, dude, he hits the sickest fade around this corner. I mean, just a low, hot, peeling fade, a ball flight that you would <laughs> never, ever see anyone hit intentionally uh, in this era, and it was just awesome. Um Norman gets up. Uh, Rick Riley says, Norman, who had all his luck surgically removed as a boy, started Sunday by hitting the first flag stick with his wedge shot, a bad break that catapulted his ball off the green for where he had to scramble to make par. A uh, bad omen for things to come. So, again, picking this up on the back nine, it's all on YouTube. U.S. Open Classic Finishes 1995. Uh, Norman heads into the back nine uh, with the lead. He makes a nice up and down on 11, but makes bogey. On 12, Lehman makes a birdie, and it's now a four-way tie at plus one with Greg Norman, Tom Lehman, Bob Tway, and Corey Pavin. Uh, and again, they're weaving in and out of these foursomes uh, or these groups really quickly and nicely, and it's just like you can you can feel the action heating up here. I wish I didn't know the result because it's like, damn, I kind of want to just like relive this as if I don't know who wins it. Davis Love is not far away as well. Uh, he gets up and stuffs one on 16. And he has a four footer to tie the lead at plus one. Doesn't touch the hole. Misses the like misses the putt badly. Um, Mickelson stuffs one on 14. He gets within one of the lead, and then Norman kind of begins the shit show. He pulls into the fescue on 13, uh, and he makes a bogey. Tway makes a bogey on 14. Pavin step you know learns that he's tied for the lead. Steps up and just stuffs one in tight on 15 and pours in the putt dead center. Now he knows at that he said at that point he realized the tournament was his and he is going to go play the final three holes with the lead. He's at even par. Norman makes a bogey. All of a sudden he's two back. He just looks miserable. He hasn't made a birdie in over thirty holes or something like that, and it's just been a very very slow bleed of all these missed eight foot par putts all over the place. The carnage. I love it. A sick wrinkle thrown in here for this final pairing. David Fay comes in the booth and says, "Pace of play. What do you think the pace of play was?" Uh, for a, a twosome at the U.S. Open was in 1995. The the established pace of play, like the rule of thumb oh, pace of play. Oh, the rule of thumb. I would say four hours and 50 minutes or something. For a twosome. I'll let you re-answer. Oh, it's a twosome. They're, they're in twosomes. What do you think the, the standard uh, pace of play would be? Uh, four hours. Three hours and 40 minutes. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. And so he comes on to say that Norman and Lehman are over a hole behind, and they got put on the clock in the final pairing of the oh U.S. Open. While things in the are final happening. pairing. In the final pairing. And it's 100% on Norman. I mean, he hovers over the ball forever. He takes forever to make decisions. It's a tough, tough scene. But 
They were eight minutes uh, over their time through the 12th hole, and it's a two-shot penalty for two times over 40 seconds once you get put on the clock. Costas comes in, says, Norman's major record reads, victories two, near misses too often. Haven gets up to the 16th hole. Wind is whipping. And this hole played freaking amazing. No one is getting home in two. It becomes like a, dude, you better hit the fairway if you're going to be able to lay up in the right spot. The layup was really difficult. Nor uh, Paven just slaps one out in the fairway and has a three-wood hooking layup. It's a pre-apex fist pump on a layup. Like, that's how much he smokes this three-wood or whatever he hits. Like, underneath the wind, I'm telling you, he hits it, and he just immediately fist pumps and starts walking after it. Gets up there, hits an, uh, after going driver three wood, he hits an eight iron into the par five 16th hole and then pulls it just left of the pin, but it kind of leaks back down and he's got like eight feet away and he actually misses the eight foot left to rider. Makes par on 17. Norman finally makes birdie on 15, his first birdie in like 30 holes and he gets within one. Um, so Pavin is out in front, about ready to play the last hole. And this is like, again, this is US Open time period where. Like, the less holes you have, the better. Like, you're not making a birdie run at that point. No one was birdieing fifth, uh, 16. Everyone's making a mess of it. 17's a tough par three. You know, eight, uh, 18 is is playing pretty long. Like, get it in the house, and you're totally fine. He gets to 18T, and, like, he's just got to wait and wait. And they just linger on it. He's uncomfortable. Like, the group in the fairway, I don't know what they're doing up there. I think Davis Love was making a mess up there. Uh, and he's just got to wait, wait, wait. Dick Enberg tells us, kind of setting the scene that he is next to last in driving distance in this championship. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> the PGA Tour website. Oh, my. Redo it. <laughs> <laughs> the tour website and their redo. You can't go back and look up 1995 driving distance here, but I think he was. they said he was averaging under 250 yards uh, off the tee that year uh, on the PGA Tour, or maybe wow. for the championship. So. Like, we're truly talking about bunting it. And, he, and Enberg steps it up and says, uh, he's a great shot maker. He's kept the ball in the fairway today. And here, the little man has a chance to win the title. <laughs> Keep going back to this thing. I can't believe we didn't get it. I don't know how he hasn't blown over in this win here, Dick. <laughs> Boy, like, discrimination against short people was just, like, really big time in the 90s. Like, you're just, that was the one joke you could just totally get away with without being 90s canceled was to make fun of short people. <laughs> Uh, Paven steps up and stripes it down the fairway. They follow the ball from a mega tower and dude, like it does not stay in the air very long. This ball does not go anywhere. <laughs> and, and again, watching Paven swing the club, he, listen, he wins the U S open. Like, I don't need to tell you how freaking talented the guy is. It like just doesn't look like the right way to swing a golf club. I, I yeah. it's also this weird era where when you hit a shot, it, it darts off the screen to the right. I don't know why the cameras work that way, but back in the day, I always thought everyone hit it way right initially yeah. when they hit it, and it always drew back in. But no, it, it just doesn't look right. It doesn't look like he's doing it right, yet he's just a scrappy, scrappy, scrappy dude. Gets up to his ball in 18. Um, he's got 209 to the front, 228 flag. The wind, again, I always assume that the wind was whipping because we know what he ends up hitting. It's actually <laughs> helping a little bit down off the right. Johnny Miller's like, I think that wind's actually helping down there. This is Paven's recollection of the conversation. He said, I was carrying a two iron in my bag at the time, and I turned to Eric, his caddy, and said, do you think I can get two iron there? And he said, no, which was a great answer, very definitive. I said, do you think it's four wood? And he said, yes, uh, I agree. And that was it. It was a very quick and very definitive decision. We were in total agreement, and there was no doubt it was perfect. 
That was Caddy. Eric Schwartz says, the wind is quartering right to left. We've got 209 yards to the front, 220 to the hole. The pin was 19 on on the left side. He says, can I get two iron there? I was real quick with my answer. I said, there's no way you're getting two iron there. It's four wood all the way. And he goes, your answer was so quick and to the point that I agree with you. And I just found that interesting. Like, yeah, you yeah. answered so fast. Like, okay, I agree. Hits the shot. No, no. <laughs> hits the shot. It's an awesome, again, like overhead view from kind of the fairway tower. I don't know if, know if they do these mm-hmm. shots anymore, but you see the ball take off, and then you can see the ball in the air with the hole in the distance. Like, you can see it start to bend right to left and take shape, and, like, it just kind of brings you to the edge of your seat even more than, like, uh, Tracer does. Starts running up after it. I mean, this ball, again, with the forward and a little bit of helping wind, didn't cover 200 yards. It lands short of the green, <laughs> bounds up. It looks like it's going in the hole and starts to break, and it just like goes six feet right of the hole. It is a sick shot. It is such a yeah. good shot in that wind. He like runs up and throws his arms up and like gets down in a crouch and like looks like he might hyperventilate. Like he looks like the moment has like taken over him and he is underhydrated or something. He just like sits there with his hands between his legs for like a little while. And again, uh, Johnny Miller's favorite call. Watch out for this one. It's the shot of his life. And uh, it really was. Norman behind him hits it in the bunker on 17. Costas' line is a hero's welcome for a little man who played with the heart of a giant. As we're walking up 18 yet again. (laughs) Paven actually missed the putt. I don't know if people, uh, I didn't remember that, but he did not make the putt. Um, Norman makes bogey on 17 and, uh, he walks up, he's walking up the hill and John Schroeder, the NBC announcer is backpedaling, like maybe trying to get a comment from him and totally bites it. Just totally wipes out right on camera. (laughs) Paven like kind of catches him and helps him up a little bit. But, uh, and then Paven climbed up into the tower to watch Norman's shot into 18. He's mic'd up with Johnny and, and Dick Enberg. And and that's when Norman does not hold it from the, from the fairway. Uh, he is the, the U S open champion. So. I remember thinking this dude looks like a plumber like that you yeah. know, the mustache. And I was just like, wow. Like I, I do remember the, I, I don't want to say that I saw it live, but I definitely remember like maybe replays on the news uh, or sports center at that time of like, it's a shot of his life. Like, uh, you know, that's kind of feels like an underrated shot in major championship history. Like I, I know I, you just don't see it quite as much as you see like, you know, maybe because Corey Pavin's just not like an iconic dude, but I feel like even, you know, some of the shots, um, T- Tiger on 16, obviously is like the most replayed shot ever fell through the trees at Augusta. Like those are shots we see all the time or, you know, the, I, I don't know. It just, it surprises me that that shot doesn't get more run. Maybe because he didn't make the putt. <laughs> maybe I, I, it got a little run in 2018, right? Maybe it's more fresh in my mind just because being back at Shinnecock, it got, it got a fair amount of run in that moment. They like try to contextualize it. And, you know, in Rick Riley's article, he writes about Jerry Pate's shot in Atlanta. Um, he writes about just a bunch of different uh, iconic shots, Saracens, Forwood, things like that, that, it, that he compares it to. And yeah, it's, it's freaking up there, man. It is an awesome shot. It, it it was even better than I remembered it being, watching it in the full context of the round and how, like, it was freaking hard out there. It was really, really, really hard to make pars. And I think it's like when people think to U.S. Opens, the, the, the your grandfather's U.S. Open, the nostalgic U.S. Open, it's golf like this. Like, I, I get it, right? I just don't think you can get there with setup anymore because of what the ball, golf ball does. Like, I'm sorry, John Rahm's not going to, if you put, if you drop John Rahm today at 95 Shinnecock with that setup, he would bring it to its fucking knees. He would shoot 20 under par. Like he really would. Um, it, it's, it's hard to describe how much the, the game has changed. It'd be interesting to see how long it would take them to adjust to much slower greens. Like 
probably would take him, you know, two days of practice before the tournament. But uh, just because no one plays slower greens now these days, and obviously you could put pins in different spots where you can't put them now. So maybe it would sort of open up some little different strategy, but I think you're hundred percent right. Like it just, it wouldn't matter. They would just, they would destroy it. So Phil Mickelson played the par five 16th par five. 16th in six over par for the week. Ended up losing the U.S. Open by four shots. Uh, this was a much closer call for Phil than than I remember. I know he has the very close call, obviously, at Shinnecock in, in 2004. But this is not one that people comes to mind very quickly. You know, the people that rattle off that uh, Phil should have won. He led the field in birdies in this week, but just made way too many uh, big numbers. He uh, Corey Pavin reached as high as number two in the world a year later. It's remarkable. He only won twice after this on the PGA Tour. He won a year later at Colonial and then randomly 2006 in Milwaukee, 10 years after that. Uh, and only ever had four top five finishes in major championships in his career. Won at each of the majors. That, that kind of surprised me a little bit, but I mean, you think of like Jim Furyk, I think has 16 top five finishes in majors, like and one major title and Corey Pavin's got four top fives and one major title. I <laughs> just found that remarkable. So. It is interesting that Corey got to, I mean, I think he's one of the more disastrous Ryder Cup captains uh, in, in this era, but that he got to be a Ryder Cup captain just basically on the strength of this major, which isn't even usually, you know, you'd win a PGA, then that would sort of give you a little bit more. Uh, but like, what's the difference? Is there a huge difference between like, I don't know, like David Toms or like Marco Mira or, you know, like why did Marco Mira never get to be a Ryder Cup captain? Like it's just sort of a strange thing that like Corey Pavin, I don't know, maybe knew how to suck up to, I don't know, suck up, but like massage the right people or whatever, or be in the right sort of the situation. I mean, there's, there's a lot of dudes who were, had better careers in majors and stuff. I mean, he won a lot of PGA tournaments, but, uh, and yet, you know, he got that call. It's always so funny. I don't know why in Wikipedia, they are so obsessed with identifying people's polit like uh, golfers' political ideology or like, in their personal <laughs> life, really? and they yeah. go they go out of their way always to identify that. I, I laugh at this now because of just how much more contentious the political environment is today in 2022 now, yeah. than it would have been in 1993. Uh, but it also notes that he uh, refused to go to the White House in '93 after they won the Ryder Cup because he didn't want to meet Bill Clinton due to their differing political views. He also uh, was the uh, only top Jewish player on tour until 91. Uh, that year, he converted to Christianity. Uh, oh. He was rated the 117th greatest Jewish athlete in the 2007 book, The Big Book of Jewish Sports Heroes by Peter S. Horvitz. Um, wow. I, I'm sorry that, you, you lost a potential hero, Max, yeah. if you're listening. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he could it's have just, been the guy who inspired It's it. such a really, like, a baseball player, Pavin Smith, is named after Pavin. Smith is the son of Pavin's agent. That's in his personal life part of his Wikipedia page. Who needs to know that about him? I do not <laughs> understand that. He's kind of a mystery, too. Like, you don't really, he doesn't, you know, weigh in on, like, golf matters of the day now or he's not like someone who isn't yeah. i don't know does he play the senior tour even like obviously uh you it, know i think he does have still a ton of skill yeah. he is did he? i know okay. for a while but I, I don't know if he if he still does he is now uh 63 years old but anyways okay. that's the 95 u.s open at shinnecock sweet good recap that was uh very entertaining it makes that's, me want to go that's back a tribute to it. like the usga having data and information available because again P As we said in the last one, PGA Championship, get it together. It's tough. Tough scene. I do feel like we really need to 
to, to continue to shame the PGA until some low level intern is forced to upload like all of the ABC coverage or CBS coverage from the PGA Championships. So it exists somewhere. So we can, it, I'm sure it does. I'm yeah. sure it does. Uh, I don't, yeah. Sorry if you're the intern who got that thing, but mm-hmm. you know, it's better than like logging, I don't know, shots or like taking stuff for people's, I don't know, their cost of outfits for, you know, making, it's, it's been possible to, to say what you do as an intern at a television network these days, but uh, I, I can't imagine it's a worse thing than log and tape. So let's get her done. As we mentioned during the live shows, during the Masters, Roback has restocked their Azalea collection. We You saw that on our live feed uh, during many, many of the episodes during the Masters. Trust us when we say you're not going to want to miss this. Their performance polos, you've heard us say this a million times. They just hit different. The four-way stretch is fantastic. The material is moisture-wicking. They stay wrinkle-free. The collar is nice and crisp. It doesn't bake in on you. They're fantastic, and the performance Q-zips are a game-changer. They're always coming up with new colors. I like going to their website, just scrolling through them and looking at them. I don't need all of them. I want all of them. I know I don't need all of them. Nothing beats rocking a Roback Q-zip for a nice morning of spring golf. They're soft. They're stretchy. They're comfortable. I'm wearing them all the time. And when I'm not in one of those, I'm kind of sad that the end of long sleep season is going to be ending here in Florida because I'm in either a Q-zip or a performance hoodie. They're the stretchest, softest hoodies in golf. If you want to be comfortable and relaxed on the golf course or wherever you're going, then wear a rowback hoodie. There's a reason why it's my go-to to throw on almost every morning. Can't take them off, and it's for good reason. They're simply the best hoodies out there. They're gaining traction big time. So go to rowback.com for a generous 20% off your first order with code NLU. That's R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. Code NLU. NLU, 20% off polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and more with code NLU. And again, their Azalea collection is out. Make sure to check it out. Let's get back to the pod. We appreciate their support of the podcast. Take us to all the right. old course, baby. Come on. The old course. Uh, as as we all know, we go back to the old course every uh, five years, barring uh, war or uh, pandemics. This 1995 was uh, a special Send off for uh, one reason in, uh, right up top is, that, is Arnold Palmer's last Open Championship. Uh, he had sort of said in 1990 that he was going to uh, hang it up, but the pull of coming back uh, was just too much. And so uh, Arnie got uh, one final sort of send off, got to sort of uh, – it, it's a fascinating um, – I watched the the thing that uh, the British Open, the BBC, puts together to sort of discuss um, – kind of wrap up the open and, and they had footage of Arnie talking in the past champions dinner and giving a sort of a toast in it, which I, you know, I'd never really seen. I thought those things were sort of like the skull and bones of golf, uh, very secretive situations, but Arnie kind of gives a, a great talk about how he came over to the, um, the first open that he did. I think it was in 60, 61. And um, because he really felt like, uh, it was the most celebrated sort of championship in the world, and he wanted to be a part of it. Uh, and in a lot of ways, the, and they're even sort of discussing it in this BBC piece, he saved the Open Championship in terms of its prominence because he sort of elevated it to the level of the other majors again and made guys want to get on a boat or, or get on an airplane and come on over. And so I thought that was kind of a cool uh, thing to see. You know, I, I love that era of Arnie where he's he's still looking really handsome and he's looking like your dad in like a cool sweater, uh, you know, and he's just like, you could see why he just charmed the shit out of people because he just was like a really guy who f- seemed very comfortable at all times in his own skin. And so he's out there, you know, beating balls on the driving range before the thing and shaking hands and kissing babies and just, you know, being <laughs> being that dude. 
so Norman and Faldo come into this as favorites, uh, but Norman is nursing a sore back, uh, which he brings up repeatedly, but then says every time is not an excuse. So, uh, he, you know, he made Mary clear. It's definitely not an excuse, but my back is, uh, is hurting pretty bad. Uh, so we're going to play one of my favorite games here. I'm going to give you the name of the guy who was tied for the first round lead, and uh, we'll see if you can guess uh, what his name might be. Uh, his name is Mark. Who who might be his uh, last name? Uh, I I would say Brooks, but I, that's obviously not the answer. If that, that's what came to mind, but I, I don't know. Uh, it wouldn't be Omira. It wouldn't be Brooks. Um, it wouldn't be McCumber. Um, so I, I I'm I'm going to plead the fifth. Yeah, it is Mark McNulty of Zimbabwe, mm. uh, which literally never heard of him before. Apparently, won sixteen times on the European tour. So. Um, Apologies to some of our uh, European listeners who probably uh, so really annoyed that we didn't didn't uh, remember the fabulous career of Zimbabwean uh, Mark. Don't call me Jimmy McNulty, but uh, I see he, Zimbabwean slash Irish. So you might really oh. piss off some people. Um, oh, from, well, from he's listed in Wikipedia as from being from Zimbabwe. So uh, I don't want to I don't want to discredit the Zimbabweans or whatever. First round leader, other than uh, Mark McNulty. Ben Crenshaw uh, making a reappearance. Ben Crenshaw calling the Open Championship at St. Andrews uh, the most democratic course in the world. Uh, the little D, not big D, as we're discussing politics. Because you can David play, refused to play it. <laughs> refused to play on the course. Because you can play any shot that you want. You get to choose uh, how to sort of attack the course. And the fact that Ben Crenshaw and John Daly are both first-round leaders tied with Mark McNulty and Tom Watson is a good proof of that as John Daly is uh, looking like a sort of unemployed gym teacher uh, as he shows up <laughs> at, the, at the Open Championship with uh, a mullet in the back and a straight just bowl cut on top. What's like, the difference between an unemployed and a substitute uh, teacher? I, I, I don't know what the difference is there. I think an unemployed gym teacher is kind of like, you know, he's he's been fired from a couple jobs. Okay. He's maybe not he's not the first guy they call, but he, he might get a call if shit's really hitting the fan, you know, some people uh you know, if there's a like a chicken pox outbreak at the school and they need somebody to come in and play dodgeball with the kids, that's that's John Daly. <laughs> In 1995, of course. You know, now I, I don't even want to, I won't go there, what it looks like these days. Uh, David Faraday uh, is uh, a shot out of the, the first round lead. Did not see that coming. Uh, playing the game again, Sully, um, a first name Bill from the United States. Um, no, <laughs> Bill McAtee? He, was he a golfer? I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> really? Yes. No, uh, Bill Glasson. Oh, uh, Bill Glasson. Yeah. I almost brought him up at the uh, from the U.S. Open. Have you seen pictures of Bill Glasson? I have not seen pictures of Bill Glasson. It is like uh, John Daly's hair meets like Payne Stewart's face meets Ooh. like eighty year old uh, grandma like oversized glasses that like look something that has had cataract surgery. Had an unbelievable aesthetic. I didn't bring him up in the notes because I was like, dude, I can't describe what this guy actually looks like. But he was involved in the U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills as well. And I will send you a picture of him because I have one. Okay. I, I'm very excited to see that at some point. Uh, Bill uh, is uh, you know tied with Faraday. And uh, a guy named, I won't even mention, uh, VJ, but of course, I won't mention, make you guess this one. Mats Halberg, not ever 
heard of Matt's uh, Swedish golfer, obviously, uh, you know, was uh, was in the mix just for the first day or so, but doesn't really factor in. Just going down the leaderboard a little bit, some of the names uh, is sort of important. Darren Clark, a young Darren Clark, is uh, sort of two shots off the lead. Uh, John Cook, who, you know, uh, blew an open championship uh, to Nick Faldo in one of our previous discussions. Little Corey Pavin uh, is uh, three shot, you know, it starts out three under on the first day. And Constantino Roca, uh, another name that uh, will come up uh, later. Um, open championship, you know, just always super fun because uh brings in all kinds of different people who you don't get to sort of see from or especially at the in this era when it was just mostly we got to see pga tour tournaments uh so the second round leader uh tied for the lead was uh, i want to say this right katuyoshu tamori a guy from japan uh didn't really have an illustrious uh career uh, in in golf uh, won some on the japan tour Played on the Champions Tour later in life. I think won one Champions Tour event, but was never really like a big stud. But was a was a serious contender like much throughout this. The Brits '95 uh, making a lot of like really kind of vaguely racist uh, jokes about Japanese players about the sun also rises. I, you you would be. I mean, I'm sure you're you're nodding because I'm sure you saw it. But like the amount of like casual racism towards Asian people in this era is fucking disgusting i was uh, hesitant to like ask about is this the time period when they like say these outrageous things about asian players when they come on the screen but apparently it is because yeah. you brought it up first but like i've watched some of those old british open stuff and they there'll be a, a random like japanese guy that's in contention and like the th they just like they they they, they use them as like a punchline the whole time oh. it's just holy shit man yeah it's it's a, it's it's always like the really bad cliched like samurai shit or like oh and the sun no longer rises here on uh whatever it's like jesus <laughs> yeah uh so the third round story is really where it starts to get interesting uh new zealand's michael campbell uh has a, a sizzling 65 to take the lead by two shots uh going into the final round uh, michael campbell very young at this point 23 i think 24 um hasn't really like made a, a name for himself but um it's just like firing at pins like hitting all these like really impressive drives it gets it walled up against the face of the road bunker on 17 everyone thinks he's totally fucked hits one of the best shots you will ever see uh from the road hole bunker basically like smashes it down it deflects off of the wall <laughs> just dribbles up over the top and rolls down to about a foot incredible like he puts his hands up sometimes you can see like a sort of a gif of, of michael campbell uh rocking the titleist hat as era, just being like oh what can't i do wrong <laughs> apparently what michael campbell could not do um right with the following day was was uh get to the course in time uh this is a sort of a little known story that has always kind of fascinated he was staying in like dundee and he, he did a podcast with uh, sort of like the story of the open stuff uh, where um, he talked about this. So this isn't like speculation. And he said that IMG, his agency at the time, was like, hey, do you want to take a helicopter to uh, the old course on Sunday? You know, you're leading, like it'll be like a really cool experience, whatever. And he's like, yeah, you know, like that sounds great. I would, I'm not going to try to do a, a Kiwi accent here because that definitely very offensive. Uh, <laughs> But he says, you know, I'll, I definitely would um, would like to do that. That'll, that'll be cool. The chopper that's supposed to take him there is like 45 minutes late. Stop. He's just sitting there leading the fucking open championship stuck in Dundee. Well, you know, like 
30 minutes away, stewing and infuriating about this. Chopper finally comes, his wife get on it, and then they get to, they land, and it's still, the course is like 10 minutes away. You don't like, it's not like you could land yeah. on the 16th green or something. So they get in a van, and he like tells the van driver, you know, you, listen, mate, you have to like drive on curbs, like go through the wrong way down streets. I don't care. Like, I'm going to be the first guy to ever like be, you know, disqualified while leading the open. He gets to, <laughs> he gets I've to never the range. heard this. Oh, yeah. He gets to the range. He has time to hit like, maybe like 10 shots like he, he's completely rushing he doesn't hit a single putt before the round starts out and just like yanks his drive like way left and it's like you can tell he's just fucking rattled the entire day like it's i mean he this was he could have clearly like won the open championship if he had sort of like been able to go through his regular routine Whoa. and like have a peace of mind or whatever but him his early stumble just sort of like opens it up for everyone else to kind of, you know, and it's a very windy day. It's, it's not a sort of day where like, you know, birdies are out there. Uh, and you know, John Daly, who obviously ends up winning, starts the day at five under shoots 71 ends up winning. So it's not like there was this, you know, really kind of easy scores out there and guys just got lapped. Uh, and I, I could just couldn't help but feel for Michael Campbell of like poor, poor dude, just like trying to sort of, you know, listen to his agency and, and oh yeah i'll take a helicopter or whatever and that's and, uh, insane gets totally fucked <laughs> over as a result of it it makes rory's uh, Ryder cup thing look like absolutely nothing yeah. <laughs> yes so there's some poor like junior agent at img who probably now is like working at caa or wherever and it's <laughs> like just hearing this for the like for the first time in 20 years and i was like god i was hoping that story would die <laughs> <laughs> Michael Campbell get he does eventually get his major, you know, he, he yeah. uh, beats Tiger Woods at uh, at Pinehurst of all places at the US Open. Uh so pretty cool redemption for him uh at some point uh down the road. Uh I don't know if you'd ever heard of Constantino Roca uh before this open. Certainly I had not. Um I, he did have a very memorable moment in the Ryder Cup prior to this where he missed a super short putt at the Belfry uh and it a lot of sort of Journalists kind of implied that he had sort of blown the Ryder Cup for the Europeans. It doesn't quite work out that way. There were a bunch of like big stars for the Euros who sort of laid eggs and and couldn't get wins that uh, that way. But Roca sort of had to, you know, wear that around his neck for a couple of years of like the guy who missed like a, a literally like a two foot putt that could have um, you know won his match and and basically like have the cup for the Euros. Uh, and he was basically, I mean, I think he said like something, you know, I. I'm not killing anybody. I miss a putt. Like, what is the deal? Like, it was, you know, Constantino Roga, like, truly a wonderful character in golf. Uh, his father was like a gravel miner uh, in Italy. He never really wanted uh, Constantino to play sports. He just thought he should, like, go off to work. And so he sent him out to work when he was, like, 13 years old. He got, like, recruited by, uh, like, a soccer team in, the, you know, 1970. His father wouldn't let him, you know, sort of go out for the soccer team. It was like a professional soccer team that wanted him to be sort of part of it. He would basically like work in a factory six days a week where he, he would sort of put together like the molding for boxes, like cardboard boxes. And his hands were like constantly like dunked in hot water. And so it was like his hands would wake up just like aching and stuff. And it was all for like 300 bucks a month, essentially. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so... Like Roga had like a very you talk about like people who, you know, I think there was some reference in the um full swing to Tony Finau, like growing up dirt poor. Like Constantino Roca 
had it much worse, like working from a 15 year old wow. uh, in a you know box shop. Maybe like I'm putting a little too much emphasis on the helicopter story for Michael Campbell's uh, sort of slow collapse because they asked him on Saturday night, like, you know, are you, you're leading the open? Are you feeling overwhelmed? And he said, am I overwhelmed? Well, no. I mean, yes, yes. I'm very <laughs> overwhelmed. Which <laughs> is actually a great quote. <laughs> so obviously uh, John Daly ends up sort of being the story uh, in this Sunday. Like he's, you know, this is sort of pre tiger Daly is completely kind of rewriting the rules of golf. We talked a lot about that in the PGA where, a couple, you know, in 90, when he first broke on the scene and, and won the PGA in 91, he was basically just taking it over like every dog leg in, in this era. Like he had been through a lot of shit. Like this is already is on his second marriage. He's you know been suspended from the tour at one point for sort of gambling and alcohol stuff. They're, the British announcers are sort of often implying throughout the thing. Oh, he's not the most popular man in America, but the Brits here sure love him. And it's like, wow, you know, I don't know about that. Like there's <laughs> certainly a lot of people who really love John Daly still like, alcohol drug problems whatever uh beside the fight so but daily's like i was he's really just absolutely still like nuking the shit out of the ball i mean it this is not the era what we saw like with rory and cam smith where we expect them to drive all the par fours this is the era where it's first sort of becoming truly possible so you know daily drove all six of the par fours like three nine ten twelve sixteen and eighteen and he's reaching all the par fives with iron in his hands and so it's just like, even though uh, he's not like tearing it up on Sunday, the wind is blowing so hard that he's like giving himself just more and more chances than anybody else. Already, like Riley in writing in Sports Illustrated said that like you could see the RNA sort of grimacing every time John Daly sort of you know slowly moved up the leaderboard because they were sort of asking it. Riley Riley wrote at one point like asking themselves, "Are we really going to have to invite this bloke to dinner like for the rest of the?" <laughs> rest of time uh and he john daly is asked at one point like you know do you think you'll join the rna if you uh win and he says i ain't joining if there's like rules and crap i hate them rules crap. <laughs> um, he's actually four back when the round begins of the day uh to michael campbell uh obviously but and roca's ahead of him at the start of the day but he says he woke up uh, and he was feeling just right. He had like four or five chocolate croissants for breakfast. Oh my God. And then he and his wife, he and his wife, Paulette, danced crazily in their room to Wilson Pickett CDs, <laughs> which is not a sentence I could have made up. Like, that's just truly amazing. He says, I, I'll tell you, I love my wife probably more than golf, he would say later, uh, which of course wasn't, you know, didn't last. Uh, this is his second or fourth wives. Um, he actually like daily. I don't know if you remember, had said that he, when he won it, he said, I want to win more majors than Jack Nicholas. Uh, and so, uh, sure, as he sort sure. of like hangs on in this, uh, you know, Riley points out like at 29, he has a second major, uh, you know, only Nicholas Watson and Johnny Miller were the only other Americans who had had two majors before they were 30. This was not the era where like mm. Spieth is winning, you know, two majors before turning 25 or Rory's winning four majors before turning 25. So down the stretch of this is kind of one of the more memorable open championships ever, but not for necessarily like anything that John Daly does. Like he plays really solid. One of the things that's sort of really apparent about Daly, if you watch like the final round of the open championship is 
the dude was not just a bomber. He was really like an artist. It was sen- like sensible, sensible, sensible golf to my memory from like the dude that we don't paint as like the most sensible golfer. Like it was just proper execution, leaving it in the right places, two putting, lag putting, all the things you're supposed to do in Lynx golf. It wasn't like truly like shocking, like, oh my gosh, like this dude is tearing it up. Uh, it was just like smart, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I don't, you know, screw up and hit this, you know, in an impossible up and down spot. And then when he would get in difficult spots, like he had his super soft hands, he could, you know, get around it. It does make you kind of wish uh, when you watch this stuff, like, man, it would have been fun if John Daly was like, had more of a normal like universe surrounding him or was, it was not have issues with alcohol and, and didn't sort of throw away a lot of stuff because like he, yeah, he, he hit the shit out of it, but he could really carve shots and do all kinds of cool stuff with it. Uh, the most memorable stuff about this open that really everyone remembers is that it looks like Daly's going to win pretty clearly. They're basically engraving the the trophy because he, um, he has a one shot lead and Roca who had sort of scraped it around all day, hits it onto the road uh, on the road hole. And so, it's like, oh, well, he's, there's no chance. Like he's, you know, it's literally on the gravel road. It stays there or whatever. And Roca breaks out a putter in the road. Like the, the ball is like in like a road divot, like not an actual like, you know, earth divot. And he he hits the putter and what he's doing, like no one's really, like the setup is pretty quite quick and it doesn't really, you know, take build the drama much. And the ball it pops up into the air and like, I'm not kidding, like maybe two, two feet into the air and bounces and then sort of like skids to a stop, like right around the hole. And he's able to make par on, on the road hole. It's I, you, I would, if we ever go to the old course, I'm going to try this shot because I do not know <laughs> how in the world he could have done this. He said later, I think I saw that maybe it hit a rock later. Like Riley goes and hangs out with him after the open championship and sort of just writes a lot about like this a wonderful character that he could, he practiced that kind of shot all the time that he would hit like mm. these top spin putts uh, and stuff where he'd have to kind of like skip over rough and then stop, you know, near a hole and he could do it like over and over and over again. So, and then of course, even more memorable on, on 18, he's a shot down. If he makes a birdie, he's going to make it into a playoff Daly And his wife are sort of like, you know, hugging behind the green, uh, rocking back and forth. And he's, they're just sort of praying that, like, you know, everything be fine. He hits a drive that comes up just short of the Valley of Sin, and everyone's like, all right, now is, like, for the chip of his life. He straight, like, chunk, like, the worst chunk I think I've ever seen a professional golfer hit on the chip that in 17. Like, horrendous. Maybe goes, you know, five feet, uh, like, right at the bottom of the Valley of Sin. And so everyone's like, oh, it's, you know, it's over. John Daly. It's almost a whiff. I mean, he hits probably two inches behind the ball like it's ridiculous and then so he basically he says later in the story like he was not trying to make the putt he was really just hoping that he wouldn't um make a bogey there because he didn't want to finish fifth because he would lose like a shit ton of money like he would you know he would he would go from making like you know fifty thousand pounds to like twenty thousand pounds or whatever and so he just blasts the putt and it's like goes right into the hole and it's like one of the most like out of nowhere, like, did that just happen shots ever to to make birdie and to make it into a playoff? And he collapses on the ground. He's, like, pounding his fists on the ground. Everyone's going crazy. Daly is, like, looks like he's shell-shocked. He comes out in the playoff and shoots, like, six over. <laughs> like, he, he, he leaves. He takes him three. I didn't realize that they, in the playoff uh, at St. Andrews, I don't know if they still do this, but they, they play one, two, and then 17, 18. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so they play the road hole again, which is really pretty awesome. But at this point, he's already down two. Daly makes like a 30-footer on the second hole uh, of the playoff to go up to because Constantino bogeyed the first. And then on 17, he hits it in the road hole bunker and then takes three swings to get out of there. And so it's it's basically over. Like it's a sort of a somber walk-up uh, 18. But like Roca's like, he's like hugging Daly on the green afterwards. He's like, you know, great job. You know, really proud of you whatever. And then, of course, uh, as you may remember, the streaker uh, yes. comes flying uh, – Onto the green, which is sort of the famous uh, picture that um, we've all seen. That the, the guy, you know, was a, he played basically been like planning this for you know months that he was going to throw himself out onto the, the green and you know basically like you know ca- try to cause an international incident. And he, he sort of jokes and he wrote an essay for I think like the Guardian afterwards. It was like. Oh, you know, like the FBI and the CIA and Interpol were all chasing me, and uh, you know, he had to spend the night in jail. And uh, don't leave out the best of, detail that he had 19th hole painted on his back, with a point hole, down to yes, his bare bottom, to his ass. Yes, okay. <laughs> uh, sorry, that almost left that out. But yeah, truly, like uh, a very memorable Open Championship. Um, I, I forgot to mention Jack Nicholas uh, was actually I don't know if he was in it, but uh, made a made a very famous 10 here. It was like one of the, his worst uh, scores ever in a major championship. Uh, got in the hell bunker and it took him like four swings to get out. Um, so just a kind of a fun all around, like very memorable uh, open championship, uh, which is always great when it goes to St. Andrews. The wind, if the wind whipped the way that it whipped uh, this thing, we would be ecstatic. I mean, it would just be that because it's the only thing that really keeps St. Andrews, you know. It did, though. It, it did in 15. We were there, and they couldn't play. Like They could not true. play golf that's true. because the balls would blow off the green. It's. Just, I'm saying every year, like, yeah. if that's that's what it needs. It's like it needs the win from 15. It needs the win from 95. Like, it doesn't need the win from, from this most recent, well, from don't, 2022. Let's, let's not shave the greens, RNA, so they can play in, in the heavy wind. So, All right, thank you for that. It is time to conclude the 95 majors. Do you remember off the top of your head where the 1995 PGA Championship was? Only, I think, because I was just there recently. Uh, It was at Riviera, yes. So I walked walked through the the clubhouse there, uh, and they have like little hand-drawn like artist pictures of all the people who've ever won uh, anything at uh, Riviera. And so I... I was just curious if like they still had a picture of Joaquin Neiman and they do, they haven't like disappeared him from the world and uh, there's still pictures of uh, Phil down there and stuff. So uh, yeah, no pictures of Jack and Tiger because they never won at Riviera. Uh, God, this isn't going to take that long. Cause again, there's not that much out there, but again, the, we're at Riviera in August, which I've never seen Riviera in August on television. It of course looks very different. Uh, 6,956 yards, a prize fund of $2.0 million dollars. Michael Bradley jumps out to a lead with a major championship record tying 63. Uh, Jim Gallagher Jr. and Marco Mira are one back at seven under. Uh, One of the founding fathers, Mr. John Adams, is at six under par. (laughs) John Adams. (laughs) I've never heard that name as a golfer. Uh, Chip Beck, Ernie Els, Lee Jansen, Jeff Maggart, Gil Morgan, and Greg Norman at five under. I say that because that like sentence right there just summarizes the 90s pretty much uh, to a T. Uh, Ernie comes back and shoots 65 in round two. Uh, O'Meara shoots 67 to tie the lead at 11 under. This must have been a pretty bad PGA because... Uh, Rick Riley has a comment uh, a little later on just about it being a total snoozer and the, uh, the attendance being really bad. I don't, I, it does not appear that way. There's uh, two holes of this entire, 
uh, round of golf are on YouTube, and it's the final two holes. And so that's it does not appear that way when when you look at it on YouTube. But um, that was noteworthy, something from from Rick Riley. But Justin Leonard is next up at eight under par. Elk and Monty are four back, along with Norman Maggart and Brian Clark. Uh, and then after round three, it's just a total coronation for Ernie. He shoots another 66. He's 16 under through three rounds, has a three-shot lead over Maggart. Monty is five back, and Elkington and Stadler are six back. Uh, Marco Mira is, is three back as well. A, a reporter asked, considering the way the course is playing and the way you're playing, isn't a three-shot lead insurmountable? Uh, he's asked that on Saturday evening, to which Els wrinkled his nose and replied, have you been around, lady? Um <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, which, yeah, I don't know how well that would uh, get. Then he handed her Go a tampon, tonight. actually. So. Oh, um, dear. Um, the Los Angeles Times said, Welcome to the Ernie Els Show, written and starring none other than Theodore Ernest Els. He had the lowest 54-hole score ever recorded in a major at 197. Um, I learned at this time also from our friends, the Eugene Register Guard, uh, Dominique Wilkins just signed a contract to play in Greece uh, on this day. Uh, Michael Johnson was in the process of doing some things in track. Edgar Martinez was leading the AL batting title, while Mike Piazza and Tony Gwynn were hitting three, uh, 364 in the NL. Uh, Hideo Nomo had the lowest ERA in the NL and Tim Wakefield in the AL. So I enjoyed scrolling through those papers and seeing uh, seeing, seeing just yeah. random, random names pop up. See, PGA of America, if you're listening, this is what we need to do to fill the dead PGA exactly. time when you don't it. have your shit on the, the thing is we got to talk about other sports that are going on in the world, which is awesome, but probably you could have this time that we'd be talking <laughs> to if we knew anything about what like Elkington shot on the front nine at Riviera. Uh, the article lays out, listen, if Ernie goes and shoots 100 today, somebody's going to have to go ape shit. That includes like Elkington needs to shoot 63. Like they list that out in the article. Elkington does go out and birdie four holes on the front nine, turns over and birdies 10, 11, and 12. And again, there's the again the only footage we have starts on the 71st hole where Elkington's in the right rough. Riv looks really different at this time, too. Really thick rough. Uh, maybe it's just that time of year or the way that course played um, back in this era. But hacks it out, uh, misses the green, gets up and down, though, for par, and uh, makes a par on uh, the 18th hole. Shoots a final round, 64. Uh, and called it the round of his life. Again, there's no footage of any of this, but Colin Montgomery hits 17 greens on this Sunday, birdies the 16th, birdies the 17th, hits it to 20 feet on the last hole, has to make it to get into a playoff, and does it. I do. I, I knew that Monty was in the playoff. I did not know that Monty had the tournament that he had and how this is by, by far his biggest heartbreak in a major, I think. I mean, I know we Wingfoot's, I don't want to say by far, Wingfoot's pretty bad, but this is a insane heartbreak. That's some stones to birdie the last yes. three to, to get into the playoff when you are, it's do or die every single swing. So, again, they, they the playoff is actually on YouTube, so I can break this part down, but they're going to go play the 18th hole. Elkington's walking back to the 18th tee, and Ken Venturi like freaks out as in this is like one of the greatest chess moves of all time. Like, I love what he's doing here. I love this uh, because Monty was taking a little extra time to finish putting, and he's like, otherwise, if he'd have taken the cart, he'd be sitting on the 18th tee just waiting for him, which like I, I agree with. It was actually probably a smart move yeah. not to get there too soon, but uh, it's so funny how in detail they're trying to break this down, but... <laughs> they get up there. Elkington stripes it down the left. Monty just ropes a runner down the right side. I would watch like 
an hour long footage of of some of Monty's best shots or best runs at yeah. golf because that dude we don't uh, for a story that's going to come later we kind of he becomes a bit of a punching line but uh, a punchline but man has that guy had some memories Elk and his caddy have a long chat um, and, you know about what club to take he takes one less club goes with eight iron hits it pin high twenty five feet right of the hole. Uh, Monty is three inches from his divot in regulation. That's how close he drove it to uh, his drive in regulation, which he made birdie. Before he hits a shot, he is more concerned with the cameras and other people inside the rope as he gets into his shot. It's a freaking parody of Monty. He's glaring at them. He does his little hand gesture at them like everybody stands still and then hits it Would right at the flag. Please back up. <laughs> Just knock it off. You're bothering me. <laughs> Hits it right at the flag, but he comes up about 20 feet short. So, again, like, on Monty's just, like, snake-bitten career path, Elkington watched Monty's putt from the booth, um, you know, from the scoring tent when when Monty made it to get into the playoff. Elkington's got the same exact putt and just pours it in the center of the hole from 25 (laughs) feet. Knew exactly what the read is. Pours it in the middle. Goes nuts. Jim Nance the call. Yes, Steve Elkington. But Venturi comes in quick. Uh, one more to play. This is not over with yet. Uh, as the cheering still goes uh, on for uh, for Elkington, which is accurate. Like Monty could have made it, but he misses it low. Uh, again, Elk says on the on the green. I can't believe it. I just played the round of my life. Uh, again, they remember the Azinger win. How much they rushed the Wanamaker. This happens really quickly. They bring the trophy out. Cut to uh, they get a couple quick interview questions and it's gone. That's the end of the telecast. I guess Elkington had enormous, like outrageous allergy issues and sinus issues mm-hmm. over the years in terms of like it legitimately like threatened his career, mm-hmm. along with uh, melanoma the size of a moan and half golf ball from his shoulder that he had removed in the previous year. Which uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I knew those details, but. Again, Riley's uh, post, uh, you know, his wrap-up says, okay, so maybe history will giggle at this one. They'll cough at the crummy attendance, uh, the obscene scoring, which is 464s, 263s, and lowest scoring average in major history. Uh, they sneer at the Nahide greens, spiked and brown and dead. Uh, the greens did look awful. The spike marks looked awful around the hole. Uh, and they'll point out that everyone was treating it more as a qualifier for next month's Ryder Cup at Oak Hill in Rochester, New York. Uh, which I just found uh-huh. interesting that that was such a storyline at that point. But yeah. Elkington's uh, next-door neighbor and longtime mentor in Houston, 1956 PGA champion Jackie Burke, found a flaw in Elkington's back nine struggles last month at the British Open, where he finished two back despite hitting one approach shot after another at the flagstick. Uh, he said he was not releasing the putter, Burke scolded, and he went out and uh, had the putting week of his life. This is Monty's fourth playoff loss, second major loss in a playoff in the last two years. He lost the prior year's U.S. Open. And, uh, again, this is Riley writing up the final putt. Montgomery looked at the putt from all sides and stepped up. Somewhere in the silence of the moment, way above the green, up the 53 steps to the famous clubhouse, a baby was crying. It's Annie, which is uh, Steve Elkington's baby, who's crying because he's like. <laughs> After she stopped, Montgomery missed the putt inches to the right. Uh, Again, just aggressive here. Uh, Missed the putt to his right, let his double chin drop to his sunken chest, shook hands with Elkington, walked to the side of the green where they were already setting up for the victor celebration, kicked the flagstick, and turned three shades past his original ruddy right onto eggplant. I don't think I fully understand all that, but it's, it's intense writing there. He said, uh, you could not have done any better, he said to nobody in particular as he climbed those suddenly endless steps. You live your whole life, and it depends on one putt, and it was out of my hands. 
that's a quote. And then it says, uh, Bradley, can a guy be allergic to majors? Guess how many greens Monty hit out of 72 this week at Riviera? You said he hit 17 on Sunday. Uh, I'm going to guess, uh, did he hit 57, 58? 67 greens? of 72 greens oh, at Riviera shit. and did not win. Uh, he said, unfortunately, I had 17 more putts than Elkington. That's over four rounds I'm giving away to the eventual winner. That's a lot. That's a hell of a lot. They'd redone the greens. They were the poorest greens that we've ever putted on in a major championship. I just didn't get to grips with them at all. Normally, wow. I would say, wah, 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 whiny, but it did look pretty rough. Again, I only got to rough. see two holes, but it just did not look very uh, they're talking about the spike marks in front of Elkie did three footer that he had to shoot 64. And it was, it looked pretty kind of <laughs> risky, but. Well, Rory did say uh, last week, they're trying to get a U.S. open at Riv. Maybe the, the sort of Brown disgustingness of that PGA haunts it still. And that uh, they need to, to redo it and rip it up pretty much again to you know, finally put that to bed. I feel like this. There should be stronger memories from this one. This seems like a classic. I yeah. mean, I know the scoring's low, but man, there seemed there was Ernie Ernie being heavily involved. I don't. I didn't see one shot of him on YouTube. And then uh, Brad Faxon shot twenty eight on the front nine at Riviera on Sunday to on his way to a sixth Jesus. final round sixty three that put him on the Ryder Cup team. It jumped him from twenty eighth. He had to finish in the top five to make the Ryder Cup team, and he went from twenty eighth to fifth with a final round sixty three. Oh my god! There's awesome Rotella book that that uh, that uh, golf is a game of confidence. I think it was. And that uh, details a lot of the, we used to listen to that in high school because it was just like, and he visualizes the 18 footer and pours it right in the cup. And I was like, I'm going to go do that five minutes from now on the course. And uh narrator would tell you that I did not do that, but yeah, fat, uh, Elk's the first Australian to win the PGA. And uh, that's it. That's all I got. Unfortunately, we're not shortchanging you PGA. You have shortchanged yourself because I would like mm-hmm. to learn uh, more about that. But on this, I will like to play you out. Um, this is an old ep- podcast episode with Steve Elkington. I think it's episode 204. It's not on our Apple feed anymore. I need to update that. We have memory issues or something with our Apple feed. But uh, I'm going to play you out with a little a little story that he tells about uh, communication he had with Monty and a rematch that he has with Monty shortly after. So uh, and will you indulge me with this story? When I beat him at the PGA in 95... As you could imagine, the next day for me was, you know, the next week was, a, you know, a lot of going on, right? But I, and, and this is well known that I, I stopped everything and wrote a letter to Monty and said that, you know, I congratulated him on how good he played at the PGA because basically our stats were the same and I, I, I beat him by one putt to win a major and I know he wanted as much, as much as I wanted mine. I just wanted him to know that I was thinking about him on that day, this day, that I was winning and it could have easily been him. So I wrote that to him. So that we got to put that in the file, okay? So then we went over to play the world match play, and he, we both get through two or three rounds, and now I'm going to play with Monty in the semis, right? And the, and the press over there. Where is was like, this? It's at Wentworth. Okay. Yeah. It's, a, it's the biggest, stuffiest club. Talk about a bunch of fucking racists, those English people over there. They don't even let you in. They, you wouldn't get in with that facial hair, lad. That facial hair's got to go. You can't be in here like that. <laughs> they won't even let you in the clubhouse with trainers on. What the fuck's a trainer? <laughs> Are you talking about tennis shoes? Oh, you can't come in here with those. Okay, whatever. So, um, 
So we're going to play the semi-final match, and it's a 36-hole match, and the press is, it's, it's a rematch of Elkington versus Monty of the PGA, blah, 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 blah. Bullshit, all this bullshit. So it's 36 holes. It's so one day. One day. So uh, we go out, and I told my wife, I said, look, this fat son of a bitch is going to be out for me today. I'm going to have to play my ass off to beat him. And I think I shot about seven under in the morning to be one up on this guy. I mean, this guy can play. He hits it so straight. I mean, it's hard to beat. So we go into this big, you know, clubhouse and uh, where the players only, and they've got this huge buffet down the middle of the club. And Bonty's over there at this huge table looking out over the gardens and the fucking observatory. And he's got about four or five royal royal palace people there and and the captain from Muirfield and the captain there. from Muirfield was there <laughs> is it drafty in here to you <laughs> anyway so out in the middle <laughs> out in the middle of the uh of the uh buffet is this custard castle <laughs> the the clubhouse at Mu- at at Wentworth is a castle it's a fucking castle it's got all those little you know squares at the top you know and uh, it's custard. It's fucking magnificent. It's it's uh, it's unreal. So anyway, I'm sitting over there having like a cheese sandwich because I can't I can't eat when I'm pl- playing. I can't eat much. Can you? No, oh, don't I, worry. Don't I answer know. that. You've never, never played a thirty. You've never played a thirty-six hole match with You're the asking World Cup. The wrong people here. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so we're gonna go back out in like thirty minutes. So Monty gets up. <clears throat> he goes over to the table. He's already had lunch, by the way. Grabs a dinner plate, goes over to this custard castle with his big fork, and he fucking takes out the whole ladies' locker room. He takes out the pro shop, the fucking upper deck on the back observatory, and puts it all under his plate. I couldn't fucking, be- I couldn't believe that he's just done. I said, he's going to feed the whole table. He's going to take twelve spoons over there and put this out in the middle. They've just destroyed it. Nope. Nope, he sat at the end of the table and he fucking ate it all. <laughs> I turned to my wife and I said, honey, <clears throat> there's not a man alive that can eat that much custard that can beat me. <laughs> so how'd the afternoon go? Oh, I rolled him like five and four. <laughs> he, 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 he couldn't go in the afternoon. It's one of my oh. all-time favorite stories. It's, it's a remar- he's a, I don't know how much of it's true. I don't even care. He's just an incredible yeah. storyteller and it's one of my all-time favorite stories. He, he couldn't Elk has kind of gotten himself in some shit over the years of like some shit he said, but like I love that story because he just sets it up so well. Like it just it builds the tension of like, no, no, motherfucker, I eat the whole thing. <laughs> oh, I rolled him five and four. <laughs> <laughs> there is a part of that story too where he said, I don't forget if this was in the audio that I just played. Of he, he said, I, I, you know, when that went down, it's like I wrote to Monty after that happened and said, like, hey, you know, I know you wanted it as much as I did, uh, but, uh, um, but you know, I just got you by one shot or something like I was thinking of you on this day. Mm-hmm. Like this was a, a big moment. I, I, so put that in the file is what I think he said. If, uh, it just yeah. remember that part, but couple, couple ball strikers, ball strikers right there, Monty and, and elk for sure. Amen. So man, that's all I got for 1995. Uh, and we usually do multiple years and it takes forever, but somehow we made 95 last, uh, also forever. So I think. Uh, we, we, we may, we may need to add more structure to these in the future so we don't get carried away with our length, but, 
Uh, thank you for the time and efforts that go into documenting another major championship year. It's not, 95 was way more exciting than I thought. Uh, I'm sorry that you were in fourth grade and didn't get to enjoy it as much as uh, I did. Uh, but uh, I mean, these are super fun. We're going to keep doing these. Hopefully by the time we get into the, you know, the 2000s, uh, the PGA will have their shit together and uh, they'll, we'll actually have PGA. We'll be able to see, you know, Tiger and Bob May's whole uh, round at Valhalla. Uh, but uh, you never know. We might just have to, you know, recreate it with like stick figures and drawings like uh, bacon used to do for those <laughs> master rounds that weren't on the air. Uh, I love it. Well, thanks everyone for tuning into these and uh, we'll be back with more, more frequently now that KVV is on with us full time, of course. And uh, we look forward to doing it and bringing it to you. So thanks for everyone for listening. We'll see you here. Uh, see you back on this podcast feed very soon. Cheers. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!